0: Capital Allocators is brought to you by NASDAQ Solovis. As an allocator, every investment decision you make has a direct impact on the financial well-being of your stakeholders and beneficiaries. But with a fragmented portfolio view across your public and private market holdings, you can risk making decisions without the full visibility of their impact on the overall portfolio. Organizations need a solution that delivers a consolidated portfolio view to let the investment team shift their focus from operations to analysis, a solution that helps create context faster and take the right actions sooner. Nasdaq Sylovis is a software platform that unifies your public and private market holdings data to create a single source of truth. It empowers investment teams to understand the impact of every decision with accurate and reliable information. Solovis delivers transparency and insight into performance, liquidity, and risk across an entire multi-asset class portfolio. You can learn more and request a demo at NASDAQ.com slash solutions slash Solovis. That's NASDAQ.com slash solutions slash S O L O V I S. Hello, I'm Ted Sides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocators.com. My guest on today's show is Jordy Visser, the president and chief investment officer of Weiss Multi-Strategy Advisors, a $4 billion hedge fund firm focused on an innovative investment process, insightful data analytics, and cutting-edge thought leadership. Jordy came on the show and discussed his background and Weiss's strategy back in 2019. That conversation is replayed in the feed. This time around, we get a glimpse of Jordi's thoughtfulness and rigor across work and life, including baseball cards for portfolio managers, the adaptability quotient or AQ, analytics for business development, and the great resignation in asset management. We then turn to Jordi's market views on inflation and interest rates, blockchain and decentralization, health and longevity, and mental health and anxiety. We close with his passion for horse racing and its application to money management. Please enjoy my conversation with Jordy Visser. Jordy, great to see you. Great to see you, Ted. Well, it's been a little while. I'd love to start with just an update on the firm. I think the last time we did this, you were shy of two billion, bunch of ideas of how you were gonna build out. So what's happened?
1: Yeah, it was, I think it was early 19. And we were just south of 2 billion. We're now at 4 billion. And most of that growth actually happened during COVID, which has a lot to do, I think, with building the analytics out for the marketing side. But also, I think we spoke about this the last time, we were already using technology to show data visualization of what we do. And I think that helped with both the traditional hedge fund that we have, but also the fastest growing product that we have is our liquid all that has really been the biggest change since we last saw each other. We've done a lot of customized things for the insurance industry. We just launched the usits for international distribution on the strategy, and we already had it as a mutual fund for the RIA world. And that's been growing. And I think as I look back where we spoke about, my belief has always been that rates would be stuck at low levels. We're still at that space. And I continue to believe that they'll be not only lower for longer, but lower forever. And that's putting more pressure than ever on allocators. And I think one of the things we've had success with is this kind of story that, hey, if you need something that's both uncorrelated, but you also need something that has a sharp ratio that is where traditional fixed income used to be. You need help with that. But then one other thing, and I will give you credit for this. I will give um, <laughs> others. I've built a lot of tremendous partnerships over the last two years. And uh, I will say that some of them have had heard this before they had met me, meaning the Capital Allocators podcast we did. And I spend a lot of time with those people at the CIO level. And when I mean a lot of time, I would say at least quarterly, I spend with most of our big clients. Some of them are big global public pension plans or corporate plans, insurance companies, RIAs, and even banks. And we're trying to help their business. At the end of the day, whatever products we have, we're never going to be enough of a portfolio to drive the returns. But I think where we can add value and where I personally try to add value is thinking about what the environment would look for, because I do believe that the sizing and time of changes in people's portfolios have never been more important. And the upcoming next five years, it's one thing to have lower for longer yields. It's another thing to have lower for longer yields when some people's benchmarks, meaning inflation or the cost of living, are way above those yields. And that's the change that I think is going to happen.
0: We're going to get there in a bit. With that growth, I imagine you've evolved on the data analytics side as well. And I'd love to hear, like, what does the 2001 version of the baseball card look like compared to the 2019 version of the baseball card?
1: Innovation is a beautiful thing. When I listen back to the podcast, I I didn't describe each of the components that break down the baseball cards. And it does sound very money ballish, but there's actually a connection back to the human element side of it. So for awareness which is a really big part. I'm trying to make sure that the managers know their biases. Everyone has biases and by using the data to show them what their biases are in anything, it's meant to help them. So part of the job of the analytics was just to make them more aware. That hasn't really changed too much. Every now and then they'll come up with a different suggestion we add to it. The second part is the balance side. This is important to me because this is just the portfolio construction and the risk side. Think of it as we run a market neutral framework which means we expect every team that manages money here to be absolute return. And if they're not good at portfolio construction, meaning taking a few idiosyncratic ideas and then constructing a portfolio to allow it to be neutral, they're not balanced, and if they're not balanced, The third component is the reaction time. So we haven't done a lot on the portfolio construction of the balancing. There's some new tools that have gone in place, but where most of the innovation has accelerated has been on the reaction side. So think of it as long as you're aware of your biases and you feel balanced, just like any of the martial arts, I use pushing hands for visualization, then you're in a better position to react. And I have consistently believed since 2014, when we first started to see negative yielding debt, that we were at a changing environment where vola vol was higher. Anyone who follows the V VIX, the volatility of volatility index, if you look at a rolling two hundred and fifty two day volatility, you'll see that it bottomed in two thousand fourteen. That's when crude broke through 100, started heading lower. It's when rates started to go negative. Volatility of volatility has been trending higher and has been making higher highs and higher lows, and it did that last year, and it's sitting up here now. That means the reaction function is the most valuable function for analyzing a portfolio manager. If we want to have consistent returns, it's their ability to move their portfolio. So I remember we talked about poker the last time. The balance side to me, the construction, the ability to go through it is a very emotionally intelligent Like Poker players have great emotional intelligence. The part that I really wanted to measure more was the ability of people to make quick decisions, to size up quickly, because the second derivatives are happening at a much tighter space than they used to.
0: Walk me through one example of maybe a a recent conversation you had with one of your portfolio managers of each of those, of their bias, how it played through to the balance, and then the reaction function.
1: This is a good story. So this is a manager who's managed money for us for four or five years, was trained here, has never had a down year, makes his money through catalyst-driven investing. So much more, the volatility of his gross exposure is very high, he takes things up, he takes it down, he'll jump into things. But when fundamentals aren't driving things and there's kind of a deleveraging side, he'll have trouble. But his baseball card is that his periods of drawdowns have historically been very small. They may take a while, but then when it starts to go, he gets very big very quickly. So in August, after what I've called this year, this was an unsynchronized year of vaccinations and growth and anxiety everywhere. And I won't go through GameStop and Archegos and all this stuff, but needless to say, hedge funds have not had the funnest time following fundamentals. And this manager was sending me emails consistently going, I don't know what's going on, what's happening. I can't make money. Hopefully you're not worried about me hopefully I'll get out of this. And I kept saying your baseball card says you will. And then in August, my job here is to try and look for when we've hit that inflection point where I can kind of make sense as to what I think the narrative will be going forward. I don't follow narratives in markets. I think narratives are a waste of time. I follow the wisdom of markets, which means when certain assets are starting to go a direction that doesn't make sense with the narrative, I'll talk to the PM. So this particular PM, because I had confidence in his baseball card and because I was starting to see the fundamental side of, hey, growth is starting to happen again. The Asia reopening is going on. If I were you, I would be ready. And so his reaction function, at the time when we had that conversation, he was about 20% of his allocation invested. As of last week, beginning of last week, end of the week before, he was about 80% invested. He's now taking it back down to about 35% invested. He had a great run, he's now recycling, and that's just kind of an idea of how, the baseball cards not only help the managers be aware of their biases, but it also the communication between myself and them, because I always know where their portfolio stands.
0: So in that example, you have a difference in, let's just say, the emotional constitution to take risk at a point in time between you and him. And I know you wrote recently about someone in your life named Tex. (laughs) (laughs) And why don't you share a little bit about who Tex is and, and how that's influenced this idea of that kind of emotional constitution in these times?
1: Yeah, Tex is, was my grandmother. She died a couple of years ago. She had a huge influence. And I think in reflection time, particularly during COVID, she was born in 1920 which means the first 25 years of her life were basically consumed by the Great Depression and World War II, and they both had a huge impact on the stories of her. And I spent a lot of time with her as a kid. We lived in the same town as her, so I I spent a lot of time over there alone with her for a variety of reasons. But she always took me through this concept, which I've passed on to my kids and is one of my big beliefs, which is... Out of painful experiences or painful times, there's always growth and that usually the best creations or the most important creations come out of those times of of painful experiences. And so to actually grow from them, you have to kind of be aware of them. You have to stay on top of it. I asked her that about how she felt when she had to leave her home because Her family couldn't afford to buy her food and they also couldn't leave where they lived. So when you're a kid and you see these in a lot of the depression movies, you have to move away. And she moved and ended up in New York and a girl from Texas moved up to New York and she eventually got the nickname Tex from working in a World War II factory. But she was an amazing woman, had a huge influence on me for both her strength, but also in terms of teaching me that life is is not fair, but life is good and you have to be able to appreciate even the bad times to get through them.
0: How do you think about that, let's just say the concept of adaptability in a situation like that where text moves as a kid and you just have to adapt to your circumstances?
1: The title of the paper brought up AQ, Adaptability or Adversity Quotient. I became fascinated with it about four or five years ago. There were books coming out on grit and resilience and all kinds of things like that, and it was the human element of fighting through challenges. So AQ has been an important part of the firm. I generally say to the people here, especially when they're interviewing people, is that IQ is now completely commoditized, both because computers are now in our days and they can consume knowledge faster than we can, but also you're competing with them. And people, these kids coming out, they consume knowledge at a far faster pace than you and I do at our age. We still think Books are a good use of time, and I no longer think books are a good use of time in any way, shape, or form. They're a waste of time, but they have a content, but you're not going to consume as much content with a book as you will with surfing 20 different web pages on the same topic where you don't lose interest or watching a YouTube or something where maybe you get a different viewpoint. So AQ has been a one of the biggest things. And again, if you think about grit and resilience within markets that are have vol vol that are higher and you bring it back to poker again. So what's grit and resilience in poker? How do you come back after a bad beat and not go on tilt? How do you make sure that you can dig yourself out of a hole? So that portfolio manager that I mentioned that was reaching out to me consistently These are mini therapy sessions. I want the people communicating. I want the transparency and I want them to know that I'm there and I believe in their ability to come back because they've proven the grit and resilience in the fight and they're not giving up. And just the fact that they're asking the question is important. So we view things and when I interview people, whether they're a PM or whether they're someone that's going to help the marketing effort, I'm literally in my head going through an IQ, EQ, AQ measurement and I'm asking all my questions mainly towards AQ and EQ, but AQ for the most part
0: is the dominant one these days. What types of questions do you ask to try to measure AQ in someone you're thinking of bringing in?
1: Well, let's see. Since people will hear this, (laughs) um, (laughs) let's put it this way. I ask people to tell me a lot of stories rather than one word answers. Stories for me involve a lot of different ways that people integrate themselves in the world. It kind of tells me how their brain works for solving a problem. A lot of them will be on storytelling. A lot of them will be on relationships that they have, experiences they've gone through. They'll be geared a lot away from, well, what'd you do with in class? And what was that job worth? What did you learn from? I'm really trying to, find people that have already gone through the journey of life and have learned a lot about themselves. So self-awareness to me is one of the most important things for for people to be, I think it's step one to being involved as a person. I do follow a framework of thinking about the way people view themselves in the entire world. It's important to me. George Weiss has built a, a firm that, which is known for its culture, and we want people when they come in to collaborate, to communicate, to get along well. It helps us not only grow the firm, but I think it makes the environment, the work-life balance better for people. And I think especially after your COVID where people had to stay at home for long periods of time, and now the work from home and the flexible work thing is on one side. On the other side, whenever you see that, it's how's it going to affect the culture. And so bringing people in that I think have already achieved self-awareness and gone through it, they're generally going to be better in this work-life balance framework.
0: Is part of that a necessity to have gone through adversity so they can demonstrate that resilience on the other side?
1: One question that I have asked many times for people is uh, give me an example of adversity that you've had to go through regardless of what it is and then what you've learned from it. And that question I don't mind saying to people because meaning for them to hear that I may ask that, I typically do ask it for people that I'm worried that maybe their life's been perfect in the way that they view it. So I know it's not because no one's life is perfect. So as long as they're aware of the adversity they had and can name a bunch of things that came through and challenges, it ends up giving me a better idea of who they are as a person. So I always ask it.
0: So other than this incredible boost you got from coming on the podcast, which we, we won't attribute <laughs> you to, you mentioned using the data analytics and the baseball card for the marketing side. I know there's always people interested in figuring out how to grow. I'm curious what the framework is to take a team of people and make them more efficient in business development.
1: I've had the fortune to be put in enough positions over my career to be able to build things or have a team that built things all around the side of how do we use analytics to make better decisions. I think the marketing side in particular has been both the most rewarding, but also has taught me a lot about the power of analytics for everyday life. If you're trying to solve a problem for analytics, like with a portfolio manager, the end result is how do we identify talent that will provide the sharp ratio or approximate sharp ratio that we want? Well we go through this thing, we see if we can re-engineer the returns, what's their factor risk, what are their biases, and you get to a complete picture. For marketing, it's actually a different, you're trying to solve for a different problem, which in our side has been time efficiency. Are we spending the right amount of time with the right amount of people? How are we building relationships with them? Are they reading our content? Do they want to read the content? Do they like the content? Are we doing a good job of building those relationships? And that is a very different thing. It involves the content we're providing and make sure that it It's good for them to help them with their business. It starts from the point of, okay, how do we fit in a day enough time (laughs) to get this done? And the way most marketing efforts have been done, particularly for the mutual fund world as I went through it. Okay, let's get an army of people in each city, or you cover that region, you cover that region, then we'll get some wholesalers and we'll go through it. And that's the way they would service people. That's different than the institutional side. Meaning, for the institutional side, there's only about a hundred, maybe two hundred potential global investors that can invest enough money in a multi-strategy fund for us to really build relationships with. I think there's twelve thousand RIAs, over three hundred thousand financial advisors. So how do we build relationships with them? With just a marketing staff that historically has been institutional. So it's been both fun. We've brought on a lot of different people to cover off. Technology has helped because now we get to talk to them via Zoom, which means we can talk to 60 people at once. We have a uh, Japan call on Tuesday night from 9.30 to 10.30. Then I have a European call the following morning from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock. You could never do that before. And the amount of people that I think are going to be on them is probably going to be close to 200. So the ability of doing that means that if you haven't changed your marketing approach at this point to incorporate the power of technology, the power of Zoom and the visualization, as opposed to a conference call, you're missing out. And the fact that we were already doing data visualization presentations and kind of moved away from a deck a long time ago, all that's been kind of fun. And it's enabled us to hire younger people. We have a data scientists as part of the marketing effort now too, to make sure that we can customize things for people on the fly. That way our data scientists that are more geared towards the portfolio managers don't have to be as in, involved. And I think we're, we'll are we be rolling out coders and data scientists for the operational side too. Because again, once I saw that time efficiency is the big thing, well, you really want to make sure that we're cutting down on mistakes and we're being as efficient as possible and spending our time the right way.
0: What are some of the counterintuitive things you learned from starting to measure all these aspects of the process?
1: Well, I'll give you one right off the bat. So, and again, I I think because I think so much in poker, there's a phrase that is used in poker for a movement of going over the top, like trying to extract information by making this big, bold bet. Well, in marketing, it's a similar thing, meaning, If you're dancing with someone and you're calling them up and you're going through, but you haven't actually asked for the order or you haven't come back and said, you know what? I don't want to waste your time and I don't want you to waste my time. What I realized is for most marketing people, they don't want to do that because it sounds like a confrontational thing. But the reality is you're actually thinking of the other person. I don't want to waste your time. If me calling you and you're just being nice to me, don't do it. And so at some point, On the analytics, you have to ask it. And that's not just after multiple meetings at some point. This is also, if you get on a meeting where you think this organization or this person might be interested in, and then you find out within two minutes, they've never invested in a hedge fund and they're not there at that process. Why not stop the meeting at two minutes? Now, when you've traveled (laughs) to Chicago, you're kind of stuck, but you'd be surprised at how much the person on the other end actually respects you more for saying, Hey, I have a lot of time in my day too. Time has become one of the things for all human beings that has become an issue. And I think with COVID, nobody wants to commute the way they did. And they're realizing that that was a time suck. Well, I think also when you go through just meetings where they were a waste of time, you're better off just going over the top and saying. So that was that's definitely one thing that came out in this.
0: So we're hearing a ton about the great resignation across businesses. And I'd love to hear your perspectives on where you're seeing, let's just call it employment friction in asset management and hedge fund world?
1: Boy, that's a good question. Everyone talks about the fact that people are less happy at work, that they're questioning the work-life balance. So you've clearly coming out of COVID, you've had a lot of people either leave, change jobs, question whether what they've been doing was the right thing. I don't I think that's just in the job world. I think that is in everybody's life. So I've just kind of viewed it as, I remember what it felt like after 9-11 when people left the city, and I left Morgan Stanley only a year and three months after. The best man at my wedding and my best friend growing up died in 9-11. So I could kind of understand why people are still in this emotional place. For a lot of people, they got scared for valid reasons. Over 50% of the working population in the US has pre-existing conditions. So it was a real thing. And I think rather than focus on the friction in jobs, I just think it was an in- Incredible period of time. The work from home thing has changed the way people view. I'm seeing tons of resumes from people that I think are great. And I will tell you, this year, I can think of three people that we hired that I think are going to impact our firm in in a major way. And they weren't running away from anything, they were actually just looking for work and they just fit this kind of, I would say, new flexible work schedule thing and i don't think they would have done well in the specialization world i think they're more geared towards what i've always tried to have here which is a more collaborative creative curiosity driven research place and most of the banks and most of the places that are more siloed i think they've had the bigger issue i think the places that are allowing people to kind of grow in different ways in a culture that's more collaborative I think those are places that are more attractive, and I think the silo based places are going to have a hard time.
0: All right, I want to turn a little bit to markets. Let's just start, open it up, your view on rates and on inflation.
1: Well, let me start with the inflation stuff because I've, whatever content I have done for the last, since really May of last year, after the quote unquote modern monetary theory really the global war on poverty, the redistribution of wealth, whatever you want to call it, was evident coming out of it when we were basically not going to allow ourselves to go through a long recession, which to me means, okay, well, we're back at that stage where what are my views on inflation? Because if I'm a lower for longer and almost all the papers I wrote about were the deflation side of things. And so this is before I go into why I think inflation will be higher for at least the next five years. I am still a deflationista. I wrote about that. I believe technology will arbitrage all this stuff out. But for the next at least five years, I think we have three major problems that are being caused mainly by the regulatory stuff coming out of COVID, but also by some just demographics. Input costs are going higher because this global goal By governments by 2050 to do something with climate change. I was on a call the other day and I just want to make sure everyone hears this. If you went back 30 years, so forget forecasting for governments 30 years from now, but if you went back 30 years and said you wanted to reduce inflation, you would have no idea that we would have a personal computer in our hand that has replaced all these objects. Like The governments cannot forecast 30 years. Human beings cannot. Our brains are still linear functioning machines in a world of exponential change. So there's absolutely no way that we have any idea what the new energy solutions will be in 10 years. We have chosen to go down this path. ESG makes it more difficult for investors to allocate money into the direction. So you've got a misallocation of resources towards the fossil fuel area. And that might be the right thing to do. But in the short term, it will force up commodity prices in my opinion. And I think it's not just going to be energy. I think it'll be the things that are needed for uh, electricity. And you're already seeing that obviously in a lot of the prices. So the input costs are going to be higher. That is a transitory thing. It'll eventually be solved by nanotechnology, advanced materials, not by the solutions that I think are, are being discussed now. The labor shortage is the most important one. And again, I think this is a mistake that is not understood. There'll be a global labor shortage depending on the country. And the reason we're going to have a labor shortage in the U.S. partly is because of some of the things we've put in place, the universal basic income type things that have gone in, which I think are going to be here. It's a new entitlement. I think it's going to be here, and I don't think you can get rid of it. Secondly, you do have a problem coming out of COVID with the fact that this thing is endemic. It's probably going to be here, and I don't see that it won't have an implication. If we're going to stay around 50% vaccination rates... I don't see how this isn't going to be an issue on the supply chain, which is really the third point, but the global labor shortage, and in particular in the US, which is showing up, the job openings at the level they are, the unemployment rate going down at the pace it is, we have underestimated the power of early retirees because we've driven consumer net worth up to high levels. There's a lot of different moving forces, but between labor shortage, input costs being higher, and the supply chain, which people have to remember... Before COVID, we had the China-US divorce. It's still in place. We still have tariffs, and that's never going back to the way it was. And so this whole thing that everything we had here was made in China, we have to redo the supply chains. And that's just going to take a lot of time. So when you put in the fact that we've got the COVID issues, we've got labor shortages, we've got all these different problems, and we're dependent on the supply chain of making one item from Ten different countries or whatever the case is, we're just not ready for this. And so I think it's going to be at least, like I said, five years before it comes in. Now, what I will say is where technology will come in is to prevent it from going too high. So this is not the 1970s. I do not believe in stagflation. In fact, internally, we've talked a lot about just remember what stagflation was in terms of the definition that gets people worried, a period where we had high inflation, but also to have lower growth, you also had high unemployment rates. So if we have zero unemployment and we've got slightly higher inflation, then you look at the misery index, which is just the unemployment rate plus inflation. And if we have five percent inflation a year and the unemployment rate is at two and a half, then we've got seven and a half percent misery index, the rolling ten year average from two thousand the end of two thousand two to end of 2020, stayed in a range of eight to 9%. So we'd be lower than the average. So the misery index is a good one to kind of go. So I do believe instead of stagflation, this is an inflationary boom, meaning growth will stay on the higher side. The isms will stay up near 60 for an elongated period of time. Rates, I just think the demographics, again, what I'm seeing from allocators, you cannot at any point underestimate the power of still $12 trillion of negative yielding debt. There is a shortage of sharp ratios. There's a shortage of bonds. And so I think we're going to have negative real yields for a long period of time. And that has a very different environment. And that causes a lot of problems for quant strategies and human beings, because we've got a misallocation of both data then, meaning the most recent time of data during the 2010 to 2020 period where we had low nominal GDP and low inflation. Now we're going to be in a period where we have high nominal GDP, high inflation. Quants use a lot of historical backtest. We don't have a period in time to go back on this. And then for human beings, most of the people that did the best were growth investors, and this will not be a pure growth time. So we've got a misallocation of experience on the discretionary side. And then finally, we've got a misallocation of cap weighting within inside the passive indices. So you've also seen a passive boom The passive boom, when you look at the S&P, it's right now 18% technology without the F-A-A-M-G. But when you add Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google as a separate group, that's about 23% of the S&P. 18% is technology, X those names. So you got about 41% technology and energy as of this week was about 3%. Materials, again, about 3%. So on the inflation stuff, you don't have much, even when you add in financials, which is my favorite sector for the old growth crowd, because I think it'll be steady, Eddie, but also because I'm a blockchain believer and Bitcoin believer. I think you want to stick with this misallocation of data and of cap weighting and of experiential side for the PMs.
0: I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And 1, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So this concept of negative real rates being driven by this misallocation or effectively excess demand for the paper is different from the idea that you'd have negative real rates because they simply can't go up because governments can't afford the interest cost. Which one ends up carrying more weight over time?
1: Well, for governments carrying the interest cost, For years, I joked behind closed doors and occasionally on stage where it wasn't being videotaped that there'd be no bonds in 30 years. I still believe that. And I used to say, well, bonds will be replaced by 3D printers and nanotechnology. And there's other forms of it where I still believe that that's the case. You don't need to borrow long-term money when you can solve problems instantaneously, which is really what advanced materials and 3D printers. That, in my mind, is the end of scarcity. And scarcity is what drives bonds, in my opinion. If you have everything when you need it, you have abundance, it gets into the whole exponential innovation. I do believe in it. It's just not a question of if, it's a question of when. And the governments will be trying to stop it. Now on the government side, they're gonna keep rates lower because they can't hurt the distribution of wealth problem. And this is the main thing is whether it's Japan setting up a wealth distribution council, whether it's China talking about the common prosperity, whether it's the US with the progressives versus the moderates, whether it's in Europe, every single part of the world is on this redistribution of wealth or protecting it. And you can't have rates go up to a major degree. You have to focus on jobs in the economy. So printing is just easier and that's where the inflation comes and then technology will keep the inflation in check.
0: What long-term themes do you see coming out of this? you mentioned technology. You mentioned briefly crypto. I know you're big on health and longevity. Let's start with crypto. I did
1: write a paper at the end of last year, basically titled, Bitcoin is finally an asset. And it should be thought of as a part of allocators portfolios. I still believe that. And whether someone puts a half percent in or 1% in, it has to be viewed in your belief of the blockchain. It has to, it's the fuel behind the money coming to it. Now, where I believe crypto, if you look two things across disciplines and you kind of think about it, the blockchain in all of the things that it does, it's about decentralization. Decentralization is gonna be a major theme for the next 10 years. And I don't think people should underestimate it. Just by focusing on web three for a little while, you start to understand really very quickly the amount of people involved in a transaction like buying a home, like how much friction there is in completing transactions. And the reason I bring that up is we have a labor shortage. We need to find things that will help the labor shortage. And everyone goes towards robotics and artificial intelligence. I don't want to burst bubbles here, but I'm still am a skeptic on artificial intelligence and have focused on a human plus machine approach as opposed to a machines are better than human belief. I just don't have it. And I think the blockchain is an easier, more elegant solution that is harder for the government to stop than say, robotics are going to take a while because no emotional intelligence. How do you fill out the jobs that are necessary? We already shouldn't have a truck driver shortage, but we're not allowing autonomous vehicles to extend down the road because it's the government doesn't want to allow until it's completely safe. So the easiest place to kind of fill this in and because financial firms have been thinking about this for a long time and have been involved in it, I think the blockchain through both a combination of Bitcoin growing so much over the last two years, the ecosystem of coins has grown dramatically. NFTs, which are laughed at by people, tokenization is here. And if you don't spend time reading about tokenization, it's real and it's powerful. And it again gets into how do we reduce friction from selling a piece of art? How do we reduce friction from doing anything where it has to, you don't get as many viewers as you could. And at the same point, people can't buy a piece of it or they can't go through it. Tokenization is gonna to be a really powerful thing. So I had something in mind. I wanted to see Ethereum be a better performer than Bitcoin to show that Bitcoin was, had become real I view Bitcoin as the gold of the crypto world. I view Ethereum as oil for the crypto world or the energy. And because of that, I wanted to see that Ethereum was actually outperforming Bitcoin, which it has. And so it's been a good thing to, I think, focus on. I'll just end it with, for everyone out there who has a young son, daughter, who is involved in crypto, of which many of them are, (laughs) my son is, he's taught me a lot about the crypto market and you think about he knows nothing about economics and so he's asking me questions i ask him a lot of questions on crypto and so one of the things that i've had to realize is that when older people are talking about this like it's some ponzi scheme or something i just don't think they're understanding that my vision for myself of the blockchain is that capitalism is kind of the opposite of a decentralized world And we're getting closer and closer to a more decentralized world. And I think there are some very big positives for people that embrace it. Over the course of the next two years, I fully expect people to realize that decentralization will allow certain emerging markets to leapfrog because they will put it to work faster. So I've been looking specifically towards places in South America, which I think need it more just because of my history back down there. They need... A decentralized world for education. They need a decentralized world for finance. They need lots of decentralized worlds. And I think the blockchain is going to help them. And Brazil in particular has a lot of crypto people down there. And that's where I'd be focusing if I was a pension allocator right now, spending a lot of time in some of the South American countries to figure it out. Because if your problem has been that you've been burned investing in emerging markets at some point, and in particular in South America, and you think about the things you don't like about it, and then you go read about what Bitcoin is supposed to prevent against, it really is something which gives you a good argument for that.
0: How do you think about integrating the lessons you're learning from doing this research on your existing business, which is you know listed markets, equities?
1: We don't do anything specific in crypto from an investment standpoint, but I will tell you, we think about it in terms of the power side. We think about it. I definitely think about it from the partnership side. I continue to look into it as a potential thing down the road for technology that we integrate in our own firm. But right now I've got pension funds that I talk to on a regular basis. And no joke, one of the questions they have is, okay, ESG prevents me from investing in oil. You're keep talking about crude going up higher than we can all think, but I can't do anything in it. So what can I do? And one of my answers is crypto. So on all of this stuff, I think there is an element that fits back into it. There are some companies and some things, but I also, as you know, I like to read across a lot of disciplines and know and fit it back into the world. If I didn't know what the blockchain was, I wouldn't be able to say that it'll help the labor shortage because of the transaction that we're not going to be able to do in the way that we had. I think the blockchain is going to change all that.
0: How about longevity?
1: So my grandfather, he died younger than he should have and was not a beacon of health. And I remember as a young kid looking and realizing that knees are supposed to bend Recliners are not good for knees. And that not shortly after he died, I really started to say, okay, I'm gonna get a physical every year. This was at, at around 30 years old. So I have all my physicals each year from that. So think of that as data collection. And what I wanted to see was how I was aging. As time went on, I became more interested in a simple question that I had as a kid, but then as I got older, there's certain certain questions about living which people should ask. One is, there was a virus in the office, not COVID, let's just take the flu. Half the office got it, half the office didn't. But we all touch the same stuff. We all went through it. So why do some people have a good immune system and other people not have a good immune system? The immune system is one of the most important things for me, as I briefly mentioned, and longevity fits right back into the immune system. As you get older, we just saw this with COVID. If you go through the data, the weaker your immune system, which happens with age, the higher the probability of serious illness with COVID. Pre existing conditions are directly related back to the immune system. So, the question is, how do we change our immune system? So, I started really reading about this, I would say about 10 years ago. And as time went on, I started becoming comfortable that we'd all be able to fight off viruses. And, and you know, viruses and bacteria are the reason that we have allergies or the reason we have all of this stuff, and meaning they're in our bodies. And the more that you get to know this, you get to start to realize that if you have a good immune system, you shouldn't have to have problems necessarily with COVID, that the weaker your immune system, the easier it is for you to get sick. And so if you want to live forever, theoretically, your immune system has to be there. So messenger RNA and the mRNA technologies are directly involved also with CRISPR. So CRISPR and mRNA are going to be topics that people realize. And if you already go searching for things on cancer, on malaria, on baldness, on anything, and then you go read, and yes, I did read a book recently, but I did it in in my car at two times speed where it was really hard to understand. It took seven hours, and that was the recent Walter Isaacson book, The Codebreaker. And The Codebreaker is all about Jennifer Douda and her work on CRISPR and gene editing coming up. And it's an important thing to pay attention to, but between what COVID taught us in terms of the ability of making a vaccine after we got The DNA sequence of the virus. Now, that means we couldn't have done this before 2000 because the Human Genome Project was not finished until 2003 or 2004. With CRISPR and with the messenger RNA and knowing how to use it now, we will be able to solve a lot of problems going forward, which means we're going to be able to keep people alive longer without having to use pharmaceuticals we'll get rid of some things. And if cancer is one of them, you can just go through. But that's just the beginning. The advancements and the discoveries we're making, we didn't have the information. And when you read the code breaker, you realize something else. The world of science has been very siloed. And I believe that what COVID did was, it was the Manhattan Project, but for solving a problem. And the ability for the vaccine to be done in two days. Everyone can debate whether they want to take it or don't want to take it. There's absolutely no doubt based on the data that It is a way to prevent you from dying from the disease if it goes through. So this was an amazing thing to do in two days, which in some cases, vaccines would take five to 10 years. So if you think about how much it already sped up the process and the government allowed this to go faster than it normally would, I think now we're going to be at a point where we will be able to solve a lot of diseases. And you have to think about the macro implications of people living longer. It has actuarial table implications, which means the insurance industry and the pension industry, both are vulnerable to the situation in terms of if people live a lot longer. The working age population might actually, people might, if they're going to live longer, they might have to work longer. So that's another part of the potential solution for labor shortage. Plus, if they're healthier longer, it ge- really does give them the ability to help more from this. So longevity is an important theme. I think it's investable. I do think the healthcare industry and the biotech side will have a huge part. The question is, where does the pharmaceutical industry fit in this? Will this disrupt them in the same way that Amazon disrupted retail? Or will the pharmaceutical industry find some way to buy these companies with the money they have? Just looking at what happened in the market cap from Moderna from beginning into where it is now, and you see how quickly these things can happen. I don't envision this to be like the tech boom with Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and their ability to dominate the software and, and smartphone world in terms of getting these big things in web two. I think you're going to have these moonshots on these things when they solve something, but then there's other ones right behind it that are going to solve it too. And that's why the code breaker to me is an important thing to read or, or listen to. Just because you see the way the science world works and how we're starting to get more collaboration and it's a little bit more open source because it's hard to hide your data in a world where things are being published online and you can get them as opposed to having to go source them out in medical journals.
0: So there's a part of longevity in the immune system that comes from pharmacology. There's another part that comes from just mental health. And we're coming through this period of time that's thrown a wrench to just about everybody. And I'd love to hear your thoughts as something we've talked about on anxiety and mental health and where it goes from here.
1: This is a boom in anxiety. I'm sure there are a lot of people listening who have children who've had anxiety issues. I don't think it's possible if you've had more than one child to not have someone that's battling anxiety. And I think there's more and more recognition on the impact that smartphones have had on this. And I think it's going to remain an important story. Now, I will say, and I had this conversation with an employee in the last week, I'm a very yin-yang person. I mean, for whatever negative thing like anxiety, there's a positive side. Anxiety gets you ruminating on things that probably won't happen. That's what dreamers do too. So I think a lot of the great inventions came out of a time of people dreaming. And so as much as anxiety is a world of being distracted more and getting all this negative information, or let's say two-sided polarizing information, I do think it's having an impact on the ability, if you can harness it, to create things in a different way. It's, in a sense, breaking down what the school system has created, which is a world of specialization. Pick a major, go do this. Well, the iPhone is letting you learn a lot of different things the way Polymaths did. If you look up multipotentiality the Gen Zers that are like polymaths. They're doing different things in the school system. They are learning through YouTube. I think I mentioned on our last one that my son, I said, hey, do you want me to teach you how to shave? When he turned, he's like, no, I'll just do it on YouTube. And he didn't do it to be mean. He's just like, no, I, I answer all the important questions on YouTube. You can tell me what you think, but I'm still going to use YouTube and a bunch of different things. And parents are like, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be this way. And so I think they're just different on that side for older people the anxiety is also more prevalent and i think this is people questioning looking back on what they didn't do what they did do if people live longer you'd be surprised how many people say they don't want to live longer i want to live forever I'd like to. I I have that complex of Peter Pan. I'd like to stay young and go through this. So I'm going to keep focusing on my immune system, knowing it's not going to happen, but in the chance that it does. So I'm not anxiety filled in that sense. I did grow up with anxiety. Again, when I couldn't focus in school, I think it was some form of the anxiety of just constantly worrying about things. It's had a huge impact on markets this year. And I don't think people have paid attention to it as much. There's always a risk that people are worried about. Just since Asia reopened really in the beginning of September, all the PMIs shot back up. I did webinars on this to highlight to people and the market started to change. Energy started to go higher. But during this period, first it was, oh, Evergrande is going to take down the world. The Chinese are going to just let this blow up and they don't realize the big problem. Even though we just watched the world shut down by a pandemic. I cannot think of something more out of my realm of distribution of like thinking about markets. Okay, we're shutting down the global economy. Okay, that was not part of my distribution. And then the fact that we put that much money into the system, Evergrande's not as big as a pandemic. So when people are sitting there going, okay, before the Olympics and before whatever election thing is going on with which emperor she next year, we're not going to let the common prosperity breakdown by letting real estate fall when everyone has. So there's been anxiety with that. Then you had the European power shortage. Oh, this is a problem. Everyone got worried that this would hurt growth and China slowed down the power. We just have rolling anxiety things for people that are investing. And I think that is a reflection of the challenges of that thing I mentioned, which is in a world of negative real rates you're not really in a stable situation. The markets are telling you things are not stable, and so you're always worried about the next thing. And I think it's gonna take a balance by people to avoid just kind of what the iPhone has done and the fact that the information just travels too quickly and is meant to scare you.
0: What do you do and what do you coach your PMs to do to quiet down the anxiety when they feel it?
1: All right, so there's two different things. What do I do and what do I try to coach? For me, it's very simple. I have to be aware of when anxiety is starting to last too long. So before you get to ruminate, you're stuck on a topic. Well, once you identify it, the easiest way to get rid of it is to just close your eyes and breathe for five minutes. And the beauty of the iWatch is that it's got a breathing app. It measures your heart rate. It does everything for you. And so I tend to do that. Now, Before that, I had a meditation instructor. I focused on yoga. I still do. There were a lot of different things, but really it was understanding that anxiety is you're lost, not in the present. And if you can bring yourself back to the present, that's important. So go back to the poker thing. Tilt has a lot of anxiety, a lot of anger. It has a lot of emotion and being present for the next hand and taking the breath and breaking down. And I think the best poker players have that ability of being aware when they're on tilt and then bring it back very quickly before they make a mistake. It's about minimizing mistakes, minimizing drawdowns, which again, gets back into less times of being anxiety. Every human being enters anxiety because the brain has two functions. (laughs) One is the fight or flight, like here and today, I don't want to be eaten by a lion. That's the way it was created. But then there's also the, okay, I get to predict the future. What do I think is going to happen? And that is the part that you have to control the predicting the future thing, because 99.9% of what you think might happen very seldom happens. And more importantly, and this is something that gets into the horse racing side of my brain, ever grand if you break it down, all of a sudden it became a binary thing. This is Lehman. This is not Lehman. The reality is there are so many other horses in the race other than it's going to finish first and it's going to finish last, which is the way most market people get to. There are so many outcomes on the distribution that they don't all end up in the same way and everyone knows that, but they immediately read something, this is the Lehman moment. Okay, we had one Lehman moment and it was chosen by it. we let it happen. Since then, there hasn't been any Lehman moments. And so maybe there's not another Lehman again in our lifetime. But this concept of how I get my own PMs to do it is really to make them aware and then get them to focus on the present. That story I told about the PM and where he was. So he's kind of on tilt. His p and is negative for a period of time. He had his worst drawdown for his history in the firm. He's now positive on the year. So he worked his way out of it. But one of the things that I kept saying was, your baseball card, this is normal for you. Like you go through periods where you have a drawdown. This might be a little bit more, but just like a baseball hitter, you go, this is your baseball card. The more that the comfort was there that I was comforting him. So I kind of play therapy to help out the
0: most. I want to ask you a couple of closing questions I didn't last time, but before we do that, you mentioned horse racing. And since we've been together, I got a chance to see your Kentucky Derby analysis. (laughs) And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, what the heck (laughs) was that? Yeah, it's funny. Of all
1: the things that I do content-wise, the most read thing by far every year is the Kentucky Derby write-up. My father had a huge influence on the way I approach risk-reward horse racing and handicapping horse racing was something that was interesting to me it's amazing how playing poker for people is like oh yeah it's a good gambling thing and then handicapping a horse race handicapping a horse race to me is very similar to the market you have a bunch of information it's in front of you there's data they give you a sheet of all the data so think of it as true quant work and then you go out there and most people try to figure out who's going to win. What well, my father taught me, which has been great for all markets, is not to focus on who's going to win, but look at where the value are on the odds, not the value of the security. And this is the part that fits in with the managers and that concept of EQ, which is the poker side, and then the AQ, which is the grit and resilience side. When you're analyzing a horse race, you have to understand whether you're in a crowded position. Well, The odds at a horse race tell you if it's crowded position, if it's the favorite, it's a crowded position. So you're gonna make less money. People don't think that way when they go, I have this idea that is great. Okay, well, computers have arbed out first price discrepancies, but they've also arbed out now time discrepancies. Meaning, when you find an idea and you're like, I found it, nobody's in it. Well, no, computers are pretty good at using data to find the same idea. Now, maybe the trend has been horrible in the earnings and you think there's an inflection point coming, There's value in that. And that's the human element that you have to kind of isolate. That is the same way it is with horse racing is looking at the screens and going, I think this horse should be two to one, but the horse is seven to one. I should go bet this because I think this should be the favorite in the race is seven to one. So the Kentucky Derby was my approach of using analytics. I spent a lot of time way too much between watching every horse race, not As they race, that would be a complete waste of time watching all the two minutes of their seven races max over the course of say a year and doing it about three months before the race. And so I do it a lot of times because people ask for it. It's become something that people want, but I also like doing it because it reminds me of my days growing up, kind of handicapping a horse race. I don't go to the racetrack. I do go to the Kentucky Derby almost every year, but that is the only weekend I go. And it is the only race that I ever really care about.
0: So if we looked at your baseball card, or in this case, it might be your, your track record on horse racing, how does the work you do sync up with outcomes?
1: Well, here's the funny thing, and this gets back into the Evergrande thing. If you're a good handicapper at a horse race, remember, there's usually six to 10 horses in a race. This is not a binary thing. So you can win, theoretically, only 25% of the time in terms of your picking the winners and make a lot of money as long as you're never betting on the favorites. And so I always start with the side of get rid of the favorites. So I think I've picked the winner in three of the 11 or 12 that I've written on. One of them was disqualified. This was two years ago. <laughs> so that was only two of the 12. So I'm as a baseball player, I'm horrible. The two that I did pick ended up paying a lot of money. So it depends on how people bet it and go through it. <laughs>
0: All right, Jordan. I want to ask you a couple of closing questions that I didn't the last time. What is your most important daily habit?
1: I already talked about the immune system, so I'll say my daily focus is my immune system, and that's for diet, exercise, everything that goes through it. But I will tell you, and this is, I don't know, a suggestion for everyone. The most important habit that I have each day is to look at my sleep score in the morning. Now, as you notice, I have a ring on. This is the Aura ring. I have a iWatch on. There's four apps that I have that monitor my sleep score. So I have a composite score of five different algos measuring my sleep score. (laughs) If you spend time on health and aging and optimal performance, you've probably interviewed at this point so many people and whatever time you've asked this question to get optimal performance to feel good, you have to get a good sleep score. If you go to bed too late, you wake up too early you don't feel good you're not going to perform optimally if you go out at night and you go to a cocktail party and you stay till one o'clock in the morning and you've had too much to drink you're not going to sleep well if you eat after a certain amount of time and the reason i say that is i know what i have to do based on my own dna to have a sleep score that i want to have each day for me i have to be already getting ready for bed okay (laughs) okay at like 7.30. Now, when I say that is, I need to start winding down and no more work, no more phone, no more getting distracted on things. And the iPhone is different than a television. The iPhone, you're just kind of going all over the place. You end up in these rabbit holes. So at 7.30, I'm getting ready mentally. I stopped eating after 7.30. And for me, those are the things. I can have three glasses of wine, does not affect my sleep score. For other people, they have one glass of wine, their sleep score breaks down. So everyone has to figure it out, but it is the immediate sign of health. And now with these things, if you right now were feeling bad and you went in and you go to the doctor, well, the first thing they're gonna do is your vital signs. So they're gonna monitor your breathing, they're gonna monitor your heart rate, they'll do your blood pressure and they'll take your body temperature. Those are the things that go on each time you go into the doctor these things here measure my body temperature. They measure my breathing rate and they tell me my resting heart rate every single day. So I see the trends. Heart rate variability is more important to me than blood pressure. I'm not a doctor, but I've done my own studies on things. And as long as your body is healthy and the other metrics are healthy, heart rate variability is becoming something that's really important because it directly goes back to anxiety and this this thing between fight or flight and the ability to relax and what the variance is between it. And so you want to raise your heart rate variability. So I now do a, I use a breathing device every single day to expand my lung capacity and also to breathe from my diaphragm because the relationship between your heart and lungs has become not only evident during COVID. I mean, the amount of things people are on respirators, if they're on a respirator, their heart is becoming an issue. No matter what you go through in your life, I believe for me, for performance, for happiness, sleep is the most important score. And I consistently want to have a sleep score that's above 90% of the people at my age or by my weight.
0: Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life?
1: I'm going to give you three people. My father, who I've already said, gave me the IQ in terms of how to think about risk reward which I think is just ingrained in me in thinking of distributions. My mother gave me the EQ side. She is not only an incredibly nice person, but following up from my grandmother, she just, if it wasn't for her, she balanced out my father's strengths. And so my EQ is there. The third person is my oldest daughter. And the reason I say that is I had my oldest daughter when I was 22. So I was very young, had not finished college yet. So she became a motivating factor for my AQ because I didn't want to let her down. And so that inspiration and a reason I bring it up that way, people always have like mentors, always have stuff. But my IQ helped me when I finally did start to focus at school and when I got the job at Morgan Stanley. My EQ definitely helped me with the politics at Morgan Stanley, but also the managing people and mentoring people and helping people grow. But if it wasn't for the AQ and the get back up and the whole thing with Rocky Balboa and Repining. It's not how hard you get to hit, it's how fast you can get back up. And I believe that those three people had a huge influence on just my ability to do things.
0: What's the biggest mistake you made and what did you learn from it?
1: All right, this one I'm going to dance around.
0: <laughs> I'm not
1: going to dance around it because I haven't made mistakes. I've probably made already 17 mistakes this morning. But what I will say is this I have told my kids, I wanted them to remember one quote that had a huge influence on me that I wanted to pass along to them. And this kind of gets back to the text thing, but it also gets back into when I started meditating in this Buddhism side, which is if by definition, all adversity brings new growth and brings strength, then the Ralph Waldo Emerson line of life is a succession of lessons, which must be lived to be understood. So these are not mistakes, these are lessons. And I wouldn't change any of them. So I don't look back and think that there's anything that was necessarily a mistake in a big way. But I will tell you this, if I decide not to have greens on a day, I view that as kind of a a mini mistake. But we all make mistakes every day. As long as you're doing based on some kind of analytical approach and you learn from whatever it is, I think lessons is a better word for them mistakes.
0: Well, to that end, last one, what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life?
1: Ah, I have an answer for this one. I would have chosen, because this is a choice I could have made, to not be a New York Mets, Jets, and Knicks fan, (laughs) because that has been as tormenting a thing as you could possibly imagine, considering I have been to multiple world champions throughout sports, none of them with my own team. I have been to St. Louis Cardinals. I took my brother-in-law. He's a Cardinals fan. I took him to the finals of the game against Texas. George and I went to the Boston Red Sox final at Fenway Park. I've seen the Yankees win a bunch of times at this thing, but the misery of my sports team's not going, I chose that pain.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Jordy is always so much fun and enlightening. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me again, Ted. Always a pleasure. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principle and fluctuation of value.